Let's pray together. Father, I I am a sinner. I am a sinner upon whom you have given this great burden of proclaiming your word to your people. And so, Father, today I ask that you would bless this time, that you would bless these efforts, that you would bless the words that I am going to say, that, Father, you would use them in a supernatural way to work in the hearts and minds of your people. That, Father, as we look together at the Gospel of Your Son, that it would not be stale to us, Father, that it would not be dead to our ears, Father, but that You would, as Your Word proclaims, make it alive in us. Father, we know that Your Word is living and active and sharper than any sword and cuts all the way down to the division of bone and marrow. And so, Lord, we, we ask that you would work that in us today. By the, the power of your Holy Spirit, use this for our good. Father, I, I pray that if there are any here who do not know the truth of the gospel, that you would take this proclamation, Lord, and use it to save them. That in all things, Christ would be lifted high. That He would be preeminent. That He would have His rightful place as King over all creation. And that includes our hearts and our lives. Father, please bless Your people. And bless the preaching of Your Word today. In Christ's name, amen. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. As we continue on with our sermon series through the Gospel of Mark, uh, we have sermon calendars for the first quarter of 2022 available on the back table if you have not already gotten one. And so we'll be in Mark for about another month and a half or so. Um, and then we'll, we'll move on to some other things. I pray that this walk through Mark's gospel has been fruitful and beneficial for you as it has for me as I've been studying and preparing these messages. The undercurrent of our study through Mark's gospel has been that Jesus is king. Jesus is king. And what we have seen is that many, many times the people have misunderstood Jesus' kingdom. They've thought that He was a political king or a military king. They've thought that He had come to deliver them out from under Roman oppression and establish them as the premier kingdom over all the world. That He would, that he would establish the Jewish people as the ones who would rule over all of those filthy Gentiles. And as we have seen repeatedly, that is not the type of kingdom that Jesus intended to bring. And their misunderstanding of His 
kingliness of his kingdom does not negate the reality that he is, in fact, king. Just because the people did not understand it, that doesn't make him any less of the king. And in today's passage in Mark chapter 11, we are going to see this wrong perception of Jesus as king kind of come to a head, and it's going to do so in Jerusalem of all places. And as we walk through the text together, I want to encourage you to think about what it really means for Jesus to be the king. That's the title of our message this morning, the king. I want you to think about what it really means. What does Jesus truly have authority over? Is there a limit to his authority? Is there a limit to his sovereignty? Are there places where the the kingship of Jesus does not reach? And also consider whether or not Jesus, the king, cares most about your comfort, your quality of life, or if he cares most about your closeness to God. So let's look together at Mark chapter 11. If you're following along using one of our sermon listening guides or if you're taking notes for your own edification, uh, our first point today, the first thing we're going to see is a royal procession. A royal procession. And that's in the first 10 verses of Mark chapter 11. So let's read that together. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt at a door, out, tied at a door outside the, in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus has been telling his disciples that he is going to be killed in Jerusalem. He has now told them three separate times that they're going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be offered up to the chief priests and the scribes, and they're going to kill him. And remember Peter, the first time Jesus said this, took him aside and rebuked him. The other two times, the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. And then James and John, as we saw last week, said, hey, can can we have the right and the left hands when you come into your glory? They are still not understanding what kind of kingdom this is going to be. And now they are drawing close to Jerusalem where Jesus has told them, I am going to die. And it's important to understand that it's not just Jesus and his disciples who are making this journey. Because it's it's time for the Passover. And there are Jewish converts and Gentiles from all over the world who are coming into Jerusalem to celebrate this religious festival together. So this is not just like a lonely, dusty road where it's just Jesus and his buds kind of chilling, walking along. There are crowds of people everywhere, all right? Think think the Sunday before Mardi Gras 
and the Super Bowl's in town. Okay? That's the kind of traffic jam we're talking about coming in. And as they draw close, Jesus sends two disciples into this village along the way and tells them that they're going to find a colt tied up near the entrance who has never been ridden. This is such an odd thing that we, we just kind of breeze past it now because we've read the Bible so much and so often. But think about what Jesus just told the disciples. He literally just said, hey guys, go to this place. We haven't been there. And when you get there, right inside the entrance, you're going to find this one specific animal. And when you find it, don't ask anybody's permission. Don't say, hey, can we borrow this? Just take it. Just untie it and take it. And if anybody asks you any questions, just say, hey, look, um, Jesus needs to borrow this really quick. He'll bring it right back, we promise. And they'll go, okay. And that is exactly what happens. Everything Jesus said is exactly what happens. This is illustrative of Jesus' omniscience. His knowledge of all things. There is nothing that Jesus does not know. There is no limit to his knowledge. Jesus knows what color socks you have on. I'll go a step further. He knows how long it's been since you last clipped your toenails. There is nothing he doesn't know. And that includes the positioning of this random animal that he knows no one has ever ridden on. That he knows will be right there for the taking. And that when his disciples walk into this strange place, they can just take it and people are going to be totally cool with it. He knows all of these things. Because He is Jesus. He is God. He knows all things. Omniscience is an attribute that only God has. Some of you are very smart. Some of you are smarter than that. But I guarantee you, you are not omniscient. You're not. Only God is. And so Jesus illustrating His omniscience is a reminder that Jesus is God. And this, in particular, is a fulfillment of a prophecy that we found in the book, that can be found in the book of Zechariah, in chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, where it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on a colt the foal of a donkey." I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus often, when his followers start to talk about him as the king, he kind of pours some cold water on those notions. He kind of wants to pump the brakes a little bit, but here... He seems to really lean into it, right? He is fulfilling this prophecy that specifically talks about him as a king. Specifically talks about him as a king over the whole world. And he brings about the fulfillment of this prophecy by illustrating his omniscience and sending his disciples to go take this animal. But even in the fulfillment of this prophecy, there's something different. Because normally, a king enters into the city riding a majestic steed. He picks out the largest and most impressive horse, and that's his horse. And here is God himself, the king of all creation, riding in on a baby donkey. 
It is, again, showing us the humility of Jesus Christ, as though his incarnation in human flesh was not illustrative enough of his humility. Here he is, fulfilling a prophecy about a king, riding on a donkey. And so, Jesus... They bring the colt back. They spread some cloaks on it for him to sit on, and Jesus sits on it. And he sits on it to ride into Jerusalem. And remember how I told you that there are, there are crowds of people all around. And when Jesus sits upon this donkey, the people begin to take off their cloaks. And they begin to spread them on the roadway. And when they're out of cloaks and there's still more road, they go off and they start cutting off leafy branches and they start laying them on the road. This is a picture of something that we saw in 2 Kings chapter 9 where in, in verses 12 and 13 where a man named Jehu is appointed as king by a prophet. And it says, uh, Thus and so he spoke to me saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they, drew, they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So this is a way for the crowds to signify that Jesus is king. Because it signifies lifting the king high. He is above us regular common folk who have to walk on the dirty ground. The king and his noble steed must not walk upon the ground. They have to cover it so he can be lifted high above it. But this is not just any king. They are also, the scripture tells us that they are also shouting Hosanna. Hosanna. This is a Hebrew word that means save us or deliver us. We see it in Psalm 118.25 where it says, save us we pray, O Lord. The Hebrew version of the word Hosanna right there is save. Save us. What they are saying is this is the king who has come to save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. God has come to save us. God has come to save us. The people are crying out for salvation from the king. But as we'll soon see, and as we have seen repeatedly throughout Mark's gospel, it is not the right kind of salvation. It is not the right kind of salvation. And verse 11 kind of hints at this, where it says, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And so as we move into the next passage, the next thing that we see is the temple and the tree. The temple and the tree. The next day, as they're coming back into Jerusalem from Bethany, the scripture tells us, oh, excuse me, I didn't even read it yet. I apologize. Verses 12 through 25, and this is what it says. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. 
And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. And if you have anything against anyone, if you have anything against anyone, so that your father who is also in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So the next day as they're coming back, from Bethany into Jerusalem, it tells us that Jesus is hungry. He's hungry. This is a reminder for us that Jesus Christ is a human being just like we are. Here, back to back, we see a picture of his godhood, his omniscience, and now Jesus is hungry. He is a man with physical needs, just like we have. He has emotions, just like we do. All of these things are true of Jesus. In fact, the scriptures tell us that Jesus is like us in every single respect except for one. He never sinned. He is just like you and I, except he is sinless. Remember this, church. Jesus is like us. He is not so far above or beyond us that we cannot find fellowship with him, that we cannot be united with him. He is a man just as we are. That is the, the miracle, the majesty, the magnificence of Christmas is that God himself took on human flesh to become like us. And so as they are walking, hungry Jesus spots a fig tree. And so he goes over to inspect whether or not there are any figs on it. Now remember, Jesus knows all things. He already knows that there are no figs on the fig tree. But he intentionally makes a show of walking over with the disciples to come to the fig tree that is in leaf and has no fruit. And so Jesus responds by cursing the tree and says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the scriptures make sure to point out his disciples heard it. I will admit, as a young Christian, I was very puzzled by this passage. It seems out of place. It seems strange. In some ways, it caused me to ask questions about whether or not Jesus was truly sinless. Because it seems on the surface like Jesus was hungry and he got a little bit grumpy because he, didn't, he wasn't able to find any food and he kind of lost his temper and was like, man, forget you, tree. That's kind of how it appears. And for a long time, I really wrestled with not understanding what was going on here. But I think the context of our passage gives us a window into what is happening here. 
Because the next thing we see is that Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he goes into the temple and it tells us that he begins to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturns the tables of all the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. So Jesus comes in and elsewhere we get more vivid imagery of Jesus just attacking these people and chasing them out of the temple violently. One of the reasons why I was confused about the fig tree passage, because it, it almost seems like, well, Jesus is just hangry now, and he's just going wild in the temple and just throwing stuff and flipping over tables and kicking people out. And I want you to make no mistake. Jesus is not hangry, but he is angry. And he is indeed violently driving these people out of the temple. But the why is extremely important. There are three things that we see here that are illustrated in what is happening in the temple. The first thing is this. There is commerce taking place in the house of God. And that is not necessarily the problem. It is the illicit gains coming from commerce. You have money changers there. Because what happens is, people have to give a temple tax. Jews have to give a temple tax once a year when they come to help to pay the cost of the expenses of the temple. And so these money changers are there and saying, hey, listen, you're coming from far off lands. I'll give you, I'll give you a decent exchange rate, but I guarantee you it wasn't one to one. These are people looking to turn a profit from the worship of people coming from afar. They're trading at rates that are making them money. And then you also have people there that are selling animals for sacrifice. And they're doing the same thing. Hey, listen. You didn't come prepared to offer your sacrifice at the temple for Passover? Don't worry, man, I got you covered. But much like the price gougers after the hurricanes do at the gas stations, they're jacking these prices up because these are desperate people. I have to have this sacrifice. I got to have it. And so what are they doing? They're making money. They're making money. And so part of what is happening here that Jesus is so angry about is that these are people who are taking advantage of those who are seeking to worship God. And they are using it for their own profit. We see a parallel to this in the prosperity gospel preachers of today who are using people's desperation as a means to advance their own wealth. And I guarantee you, Jesus' angry response to them is going to be right in line with what we see here in his angry response to these people in the temple. And so we see these issues with commerce taking place in the temple. It's also an issue of location. Because these things are happening in the outer courts of the temple. At least they weren't crazy enough to set up these tables inside the temple, okay? But they're happening in the outer courts. Here's the problem. All of these things in the outer courts are crowding out the appropriated space for Gentiles to be able to come. See, Gentiles weren't able to come into the inner courts, but they could come to the outer courts. But they can't because there are all these booths and tables set up with all these money changers looking to make money and all of these animal vendors looking to make money. And so their, their lust for, for wealth is crowding out people who are seeking to worship the Lord. And then there's the issue of their heart. 
Because what's happening is that instead of people making this pilgrimage for Passover, coming to the temple prepared to offer their temple tax, prepared to offer their sacrifice, they're just showing up and saying, eh, I'll deal with all that other stuff when I get there. They got the money changers. They got the animal salesmen. It's all good. I don't need to worry about prepping anything beforehand. I just got to get there, and then I can just spend a little money and get what I need. They are looking for convenience, and what they think is that relationship with the Lord can be bought. This is really no different than what we are seeing in the Old Testament, where over and over and over again, God condemns the sacrifices of Israel because they are offering things that should not be offered. They're taking, instead of their best animals as sacrifices, they're offering their worst. Oh, I got a cow that was born with only three legs. There's my sacrifice for this year. I'm not going to sacrifice one of my good cows. Oh, I got this lamb that's really sick. I don't, I don't really need it. Like, nobody's going to buy that. It's not good for wool. I'm going to offer that as a sacrifice. And God tells them, literally, it would be better if you just shut the doors and go home than to bring this garbage to me. Because the issue is their heart. The issue is they're saying, God is not worth my best. God is not worth my preparation. God is not worth my consideration. I am doing this to check something off of a list so I can say, well, I'm good till next year because I made my pilgrimage, sacrificed my animal, gave my temple tax, and now I can go home and just be a sinful reprobate for the next year until I got to come back and do it again. In Jesus cleansing the temple in this way, in him clearing the temple, he is really saying, you people are not worshiping God. You have completely missed the point. All of these things reveal that the people and the religious leaders were not focused on what their true mission was supposed to be. You see, the nation of Israel was supposed to be a light for the world. They're the people of God. They have the law. They have the promise of the Messiah. When people look to the nation of Israel, they are supposed to see a people who are truly devoted to the Lord. And in so seeing, are drawn to Him themselves. And they're not doing that. They're not taking these things seriously. They're not really committed to these things in their heart. They're outwardly devoted, but they are inwardly not. And that's the other thing that's missing. They are supposed to worship God, and they are not. They have, as we have seen so often in Mark's gospel, they have developed an empty, hollow system of following the laws outwardly, but inwardly they are full of dead men's bones, as Jesus says to the Pharisees. They are whitewashed tombs. They are an unwashed cup. They are not God's people. And Paul, in the book of Romans, eloquently points this out to us. He says, listen, you can be outwardly circumcised all you want to, but if your heart is not circumcised, you don't know God. You are not his child if your heart is not circumcised. If all you are is outwardly devoted, you are not inwardly saved. It's just not there. And the next day, excuse me, let me back up one step. Jesus then teaches in the temple, and he tells them that they have completely missed that. He tells them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Your focus is completely on the wrong thing. You are supposed to be able to come here to worship God from all nations. And the way that you have situated things There's no worship. 
There's no room for all the nations. And so the religious leaders seek even more now to destroy Jesus. They want him gone. Why? Because they fear him, and they fear him because the crowd is astonished at his teaching. The Pharisees think, well, this guy is here to completely overturn everything that we have. And it's not necessarily that they're trying to hold on to power, although I think that's part of it. I think primarily they really genuinely believe that what they are doing is worshiping God. They really genuinely believe that they are right on the law and they are completely wrong. God himself is telling them this. And in response, they're not convicted. They're not seeking to change. What do they say? We got to kill this guy. We got to get him gone. How often do we react that way? when presented with the truth of God's word in opposition to our own beliefs about what we think God's word should say? We might not react with violence the way the Pharisees do, but we do kind of say, mm, I'm going to just cast that aside. I'm going to ignore that, put it away. That's what happens here. And so this story continues, and it says that as they pass by, so they leave the city, they go back to Bethany, and when they come back into the city, the next day, they come across the fig tree and it has withered away to its roots in one day. It is completely and totally dead in one day. And Peter says, hey, isn't that the tree you cursed yesterday? And now it's totally dead. That's pretty weird. What's going on with this? And Jesus' response has always fascinated me. Jesus doesn't say, let me tell you about the fig tree. Jesus says, have faith in God. Have faith in God. So I'm going to pause here, and I'm going to, I'm going to try to explain what is happening, why we see these pictures of the fig tree and the, and the temple here back to back. Remember, when Jesus first came into Jerusalem, he rode in on the colt, everybody had laid down all the garments and the leaves, and they're shouting, Hosanna, the king is here to save us. And what does it tell us? He went to the temple, and it was late, but he looked around and he saw everything. He saw everything. So after he sees everything going on in the temple, they go back to Bethany, and then the next day is when this thing with the fig tree happened. Now here's what's going on. When a fig tree is in leaf, when there are leaves on the fig tree, it also should have fruit. It should have fruit at that point. That's what's going on. Now, the Bible tells us that it wasn't in season, and we're going to get back to that in a minute, all right? But it has leaves, so there should be fruit. That's why Jesus made a show of going to the tree and looking for fruit, because nobody's going to go look at a barren tree with no leaves on it and go, is there fruit on this fig tree? But because there are leaves, he goes to look. Because what's happening is, the, the fig tree appears to be fruitful, but it's not. It has the outward appearance of bearing fruit, but it does not bear any fruit. See where I'm going here? And so he tells the tree, no more will anyone ever eat fruit from you. Ever. And in so doing, Jesus is giving an illustration that the purpose of the Jewish people is being closed off. They have fulfilled their ultimate purpose, which is to bring forth the Messiah from the line of David. 
And now their spiritual usefulness has expired. Because what are they? They have the outward appearance of faithfulness to God, but they bear no fruit. And this is illustrated by Jesus going into the temple where they have this outward appearance. Remember, this is a huge, majestic, beautiful building. And they have all of these things going on, and it has this appearance of religious activity. And there's all this hustle and bustle, and the priests are going around, and they're sacrificing animals, and they're sprinkling blood, and they're lighting candles. And all of it's meaningless. Because they've completely missed the point. They have outward devotion. They are committed to ritual, but they are not truly following after God. And so what Jesus does is he goes into the temple and he clears out all of these obstructions. All of these things that are standing in the way of worship. All of these things that are standing opposed to the things of God that are keeping the nations out. All of these people who have set up in the outer courts, he turns over their tables and he chases them away. And now, who can come in? All the nations. And because he chases away the money changers and the animal vendors, who's going to still come? The people who are truly committed and prepared to come before the Lord. Those who are genuinely, truly seeking God. And so then when they leave and they come across this tree that is now completely withered, and Jesus says to them, have faith in God. Here's what he's saying. Don't have faith in that building. Don't have faith in your religious system. Don't have faith in your history. Don't have faith in your paternity. Don't look at Abraham and go, well, I'm a child of Abraham. Remember, Paul addresses that in the book of Romans. I'm, I'm descended from Abraham. Not everybody who says they're descended from Abraham is genuinely descended from Abraham. But do you know who is descended from Abraham? You and me, Christian, we are grafted in as Gentiles. That's what Jesus is illustrating here. He is saying, set your hope upon God. Don't set your hope upon a temple. Don't set your hope upon a religious system. Set your hope upon God and God alone. And everything that follows in that passage has to do with removing the things that stand between us and God for true faith and worship. That's why Jesus says in verse 23, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now listen, I don't know about you, I have known some very faithful followers of Jesus. None of them have ever been able to accomplish this feat. Because Jesus is being, he's using hyperbole here. He is wanting us to understand that no matter how large the obstacle may seem that stands between us and God, God has the ability to remove it. God has the ability to take it and cast it into the sea. It is not you that makes that happen. It is not your faith that makes that happen. It is only Jesus Christ that makes that happen. And so... Notice how he says, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Here's what he's talking about. Jesus is not saying, so Christian, if you doubt, it's never going to happen for you. What he is saying is, if your hope is truly in Christ and not in yourself, guess what? There is nothing Jesus can't accomplish. That's how we don't doubt. 
If it rests upon me to get close to God, I will never be able to accomplish that. I should doubt that. But if I know who Jesus is, if Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus is the king over all creation, then guess what? I have no doubt that Jesus can accomplish what he says he will accomplish. And so he says, therefore, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. He's not talking about a Ferrari. Okay? He's not talking about a private jet. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about fellowship with God. He's talking about the ability to draw near to God in a way that the Jewish people never could. The Jewish people had the temple between them and God. They had the priests between them and God. They had the veil between them and God. And you know what we have between us and God? Jesus Christ, God made flesh. There is nothing between us and him. He is the mediator between God and man. Praise God. Not only is he the king, he is the king who humbled himself who made himself low, who became like one of us, that we could be united with God. You think, you, you think that parting the Red Sea is incredible? You think that manna from heaven is incredible? You think the walls of Jericho falling down is incredible? There is nothing more incredible than God made flesh. There is nothing more incredible than the incarnation. That's why in Luke 137, when it says, for nothing will be impossible with God, if there is anything that should ever be impossible, it's God taking on human flesh. But it ain't impossible, is it? And so whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours because you have Jesus Christ. If you are a believer, if you are a follower of Christ, you have God himself. And then he goes on in verse 25 and he says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Jesus' discussion here about praying in faith, about uniting with God, culminates in the most important thing, that God forgives our sins. God forgives our sins. There is no higher mountain that stands between us and God than our sin. And what has Jesus done? He has cast that sin as far as the east is from the west. It's not even a mountain in the sea. It is, it is gone. It is gone forever. And so when we say that Jesus is the king, we're not talking about a political king. We're not talking about an earthly king. We are talking about a king who has authority over all creation. A king who can do whatever he wants. The Jewish people wanted a political king. They wanted to be freed from Roman oppression. They wanted to have their place as the rightful nation above all else, above all others, solidified by their king. They ignored the authority of the Lord over their whole lives, particularly their worship. They thought, we can do what we want as long as we have outward appearance of holiness, as long as we check all the boxes, God's going to take care of us. And they were completely and totally wrong. Because Jesus has authority over everything in creation, which means he dictates how we live our lives, how we go about our day, how we worship him. He is the one who decides whether we live or die in this very moment. He decides how many hairs or how few hairs we have on our heads. Because he has authority over all things. Got you, Lance. Me and you, buddy. 
the decisions that we make as a church about what we do when we gather together are shaped by what Jesus dictates for his bride. And the decisions that we make as individuals should also be dictated about what Jesus says is right for his people. If someone comes to you and says, hey, the Bible says you should live like this, and you go, um, I know what the Bible says, but I don't particularly care about that, and I'm just going to keep doing what I want to do, Jesus is not your king. You have manufactured a false savior that bends to your whims, that is made in your image. And let me tell you what, that idol can't save. And one day, the true king is coming back. And when he does, he's not coming as a gentle baby in a manger. He is coming as a conquering warrior. And if you are not found in him, you will face the wrath of God for all eternity. And so today, as we conclude this message, how do we respond? Submit your lives to the authority of the King of Kings. In every single thing that you do, Jesus should be the final authority. Not me, not your mama, not your family heritage, not your boss at work, not the President of the United States, no matter what party he represents. Christ and Christ alone. Because at the end of all things, there is only one hope for salvation, and that is Christ and Christ alone. And so today, if you are here with us and you do not know Jesus Christ, if you are here with us and you have never surrendered your life to him, if you have never submitted yourself under his authority and sought him for salvation from your sins, I encourage you, come and talk to me today. Come and speak with me. I'm not going to lead you through a magical prayer that's going to make you saved. But I do want to talk to you from Scripture about how you too can know Jesus Christ. How you too can know and love and adore and be known by God Himself in Jesus. And if you are here today and you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a believer, guess what? This message is for you too. Because I guarantee you there are things in your life that you have not fully submitted to His authority. And I'm not telling you that if you don't get right, you're going to get left. That's not what I'm saying, Christian. You don't earn your salvation. You don't do any work that keeps it. But the love of Christ in you should compel you to obey Him. That's why we obey Jesus. Because He loves us. We love because He first loved us. In a moment, Brother Scott's going to come. We're going to sing together. We're going to worship the Lord together. And I'm going to be down front. If you would like to come and talk with me, if you would like to seek me out for prayer, I would be glad to do that with you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the authority of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the great mercy that you have shown us. Thank you for the kindness that you have bestowed upon us in him. Father, I pray that today, as we consider what it means that Christ is king, that we, all of us here in this room, would submit ourselves fully to his authority in every single way. That our lives, our conduct would be dictated by him and by him alone. Please bless this time and move in the hearts of your people, God. In Christ's name, amen.